to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. My name's Adrian Davis, and joining me this week through the miracle of satellite technology, it's Emily Benita. Hi Emily, how's it going? It's going well, thank you Ed. I finally recovered from the cold, which mm-hmm. was um, pretty rough, and I had this really strange kind of fever dream where a comedian and an opera singer fall in love and have this baby and then everything <laughs> kind of goes like hijinks ensue. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I'm still reeling from Annette. Um, truly the definition of a cosmic gumbo. Um, mm-hmm. Like I wanted to like it more than I did, like so badly. And it's an odd situation where everyone is doing their best work but none of it resonates into the one Mm. it's like it's too many things trying to be one thing if it had been like a like a sparks concept album with an hour-long visual album i think i would have loved it or if it was actually a live show would have loved it look i'm someone who does not like rock opera or the current times <laughs> that we live in, but it is the best rock opera about the current times that we live in. Like that's undeniable. But it it was odd because the kind of Shakespearean disclaimer at the beginning reminded me so much of the few episodes that I've been able to uh, just about tolerate watching of scenes from a marriage. Right. Yeah. 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 Because that, like, the couple of episodes that I've seen also open with a, a like a blatant sort of awareness of the construction and i don't know how much of scenes from a marriage is like look everyone wearing masks and following covid protocol and also remember this isn't real because it's actually so raw that Mm -hmm. this almost like gives you permission to watch because otherwise you'd feel like this is too close for comfort and it every episode kicks off with like it's cool. We're making a TV show and the construction is so good. Like it, it lets you enjoy the verisimilitude. I mean, I still find it completely brutal. <laughs> and the thing about Annette is that it really is that kind of Midsummer Night's Dream aspect to it. But I think Annette is trying to say like, we're trying to entertain you. We have created this. But I think because Annette is trying to say, or Gisbrech uh, sang, more about issues it's kind of dizzying because it's like well how seriously do you want me to take you or not but Mm. it has gifted us adam driver in a dressing gown going tickle time so (laughs) other than reeling from that ed i'm dandy how are you yeah i'm good it was thanksgiving last week so i got to relax for a few days uh, went up to my parents' place and had a nice big meal. And then on the Friday after Thanksgiving, I went and got my booster shot and then got to spend the whole of the weekend just feeling really tired. Yeah. Um, not not entirely sure how much of that was booster and how much of that was just eating a lot of food. Um, <laughs> probably some, some co-mingling of the two. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was very nice. The, the booster itself was um, more or less okay. It was not as bad as the second shot i had i I got moderna all three times um not as bad as the second shot i got where i was like really kind of like shivery and just kind of like completely out of it for the better part of a day this was just like just feeling really really bone tired for like a 48 hour period um and then since then uh i've been fine and you know feel ready to take on the world although uh also kind of thinking uh let's just see how these are uh, omicron cases play out before uh going and doing too much stuff but no it's been uh, it's been right it's been a nice sort of gentle couple of weeks um and then obviously uh even though we've been putting out episodes uh we we've kind of missed a couple of weeks in terms of news uh because of the thanksgiving break so we'll catch up on some of the stories that broke over the last couple of weeks i think first off 
uh, we should probably talk about because it happened um, last weekend. Obviously, sort of like a significant, a big deal um, is uh, the death of Stephen Sondheim, who passed away at the age of ninety-one. Obviously, Stephen Sondheim, a I mean, legendary, almost feels too small a word, yeah. uh, composer and lyricist on Broadway, responsible for amongst other things, uh, West Side Story, uh, Company. A uh, little night music into the woods. Sweeney Todd, Assassins, my favorite of his. Yeah, he he's just written. Uh, funny thing happened on the way to the forum. Uh, someone who's written some of the greatest and most innovative musicals in the history of Broadway, and a, a rare example, as as people, numerous people pointed out, of uh, a case of like someone being both one of the most popular practitioners of an art form and also one of its great innovators, which is um, incredibly rare. And and obviously he was 91, so it's, it's not shocking that he passed away. He, he, was, he was quite old. Uh, but it's still, uh, it was still very, very sad. I think for a lot of people, he is such an icon. His, his music has meant so much to so many people um, and also has had sort of a renewed visibility in recent years i feel like you know obviously got the new version of west side story coming out next week over here in the u.s the, the spielberg version but prior to that you know you had um the aforementioned adam driver singing being alive in marriage story kind of felt like a big moment a few years ago mm. um people really went wild including me people went wild for best worst thing that ever happened the documentary on netflix about uh merrily we roll along merrily we roll, roll along also has like a minor role in ladybird they definitely feel felt like you were seeing lots of bits and pieces of Sondheim cropping up all over the place in recent years. Um, maybe it's just that he's always been around and I've only just kind of noticed. Also, his, he uh, is played by Bradley Whitford in Tick, Tick, Boom, that uh, musical that's on Netflix, and like the, he has a kind of a notable couple of scenes in that. So like, it kind of felt like even though he was, you know, he was 91, he's obviously done all this great work over a long period of time, um, it kind of felt like he was always still relevant and always still speaking to people either with his newer work that he was putting out or just people like rediscovering his old work and being like, yeah, this is really fucking good. He was, he was just like the, the fundament. Like it's the number of generations that he influenced. Like mm -hmm. it is... Like the, the comment that I saw a lot of people share was it's amazing that I got to be alive at the same time as him and mm. obviously being alive for nearly a century that's quite a few people who are going to feel that way but the stories I loved hearing about were people just like how active he was in coming to other people's shows <laughs> really mm. enjoying them and I've never been a huge like I, I've never even massively consciously seen any Sondheim and yet I'm aware of him and he has such a distinctive face and I think I just like every image of him because he looks like he can't believe he's getting away with it and I really mm -hmm. like that <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah I, I think he was also someone who just seemed so happy to interact with culture in all its forms like just today I saw people sharing a fan letter that he sent to Trey Parker because oh. he really liked Team America. I <laughs> <laughs> ah. talked about how much he enjoyed it and that he had voted for it in awards bodies and asked if he wanted the, to collaborate with them on um, a musical uh, of some sort, uh, which was just like really lovely. And then also there would be, I think he was on an episode of The Simpsons at one point and the, one of the writers of that episode was sharing like his letter sent back with his notes. So he was clearly just someone who really... Uh, enjoyed keeping up with the things that people were the, the the exciting new things that people were doing in in culture he was also as was pointed out by i think ronan farrow he was really into video games no. um because he loves puzzles so he was really into mist and in his later years he was super into escape rooms so he was just like <laughs> which is just a great a great thing to think about just like yeah, just like a man who had just like these like real driving interests that kept him interested in the world and in culture like well into well after most people have kind of like checked out from that stuff. Um, 
which is just like a lovely thing to see from an artist that they never felt like they had done enough or that they'd seen or heard or read enough. Yeah, they just loved the very thing of it. It was never to do with their ego. It was just with the participation. And that, that, mm. that fact about escape rooms now has changed the lyrics to finishing the hat to escaping the room. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to try and rewrite the whole thing now in, in honour. Oh, Sondheim, just an absolute titan. Mm, absolutely. Uh, another titan who passed away was Anthony Scher, who passed away at 72, Shakespearean actor, British Shakespearean actor, who um, has played many of the great roles in Shakespeare and has, has lots of various roles in film and television as well, but was mainly known as, as a titan of the British stage. And my, like, <laughs> my soft spot for Anthony Scher is because it was clear he didn't take himself too seriously despite being the yardstick for so many kind of contemporary Shakespearean performances particularly villains like I think his Richard mm. III is one that is like I can't remember who described it as this but a bottled spider which is to like the physicality of it all um, but he also did a fantastic turn as none other than Hitler in um, Churchill the Hollywood years <laughs> so if you're um if you're not familiar with Churchill the Hollywood years you need to rectify that pronto and in honor of Anthony Sher um like I think also having just spoken about Sondheim and and now Sher having passed as well like there's something incredibly moving about this kind of elder gay statesman of culture like mm. that they when when so many people died and we don't have many gay men their age around, I think there's a different sense of they survived so much and yet they live to see so many of their friends die because of AIDS and ignorance and bigotry. <laughs> so mm. I don't know, it's this it's this odd kind of moment of we don't have many Anthony Shares or many Sondheims. And that's just something I think to bear in mind of all of all of their contemporaries that we lost along the way as well. Mm, yeah, definitely. Uh, in other news uh, this week, there was an interview with Adam McKay talking about his latest movie, uh, Don't Look Up, um, in Vanity Fair, which made a lot of news less because of the movie, which I think people are seeing now and are basically saying, yeah, sure, why, why not? It's fine. Um, <laughs> but because he talked at length about the end of his business and creative partnership with Will Ferrell, um, which has been something that has been known about for a while. They closed their production studio, uh, Gary Sanchez, a few years ago, and they it, so it's kind of been known that they weren't working together. And I think at the time, there was some sort of, you know, press statement saying like you know hey you know maybe we'll work together again but you know we're kind of doing different things and so we're, we're kind of working on different stuff right now but then in this interview um adam mckay talked at length about the kind of the end of the relationship and um it sounded um surprisingly brutal um essentially part of it was that they were doing different projects and like will ferrell apparently said that um because Adam McKay was doing all of these different things, like, you know, doing succession and things like that, that um, Will Ferrell started to kind of, like, find it a little weird that there might be, like, projects with his name on that he has no knowledge of because they would, they would be putting, like, Adam McKay's projects. But then the real split came because Adam McKay was working on a, uh, and I think is still working on, a series about the... Uh, the Lakers, the NBA team in LA in the 80s, and he initially heard cast Will Ferrell as one of the leads, and then he started having second thoughts about it, and then he decided to go and uh, offer the role to John C. Riley, who is uh, obviously a frequent collaborator of Will Ferrell and also his best friend in real life, and didn't tell Will Ferrell about it. John C. Riley did tell Will Ferrell about it, and apparently Will Ferrell's feelings were understandably like very, very hurt about the whole thing. And Adam McKay admits that he kind of fucked up the whole situation and that he and Will Ferrell basically haven't talked to each other in a few years um, as a result of it. And yeah, it was just, it's a really fascinating interview um, for that reason because I think it offers a really 
piercing insight into like a relationship that you know had had been going on for like 20 years between the two of them since they worked together on snl and produced a lot of work that you know had been very successful a lot of people love but that you know could be destroyed because one half of the relationship was ultimately um very thoughtless and didn't realize that he could he he was he could have the potential to kind of like hurt this person he's worked with for so long uh so deeply wow i mean i really want to see this interview now um and given that will ferrell is in um the soon to be released the shrink next door which is about a long-standing relationship uh between two men that is very complicated mm-hmm. i guess it's it's interesting that you know nothing can be taken for granted and the majority of relationships in hollywood are still based on like friendships <laughs> mm. and oh yeah i really want to see that particularly because i've not been a massive fan of adam mckay's more serious bent of work um yeah i think it's i think it's pretty reductive and not mm-hmm. very funny like i tried to watch vice and found it like confounding um i think is the kindest uh, thing to say jeez yeah but yeah that's a that's a great inter- interview um and again i think the thing about it that i find really interesting is that there are often i think in certainly in like modern hollywood everything is so pr managed and these kind of things yeah. are really kind of like pushed off to the side and kind of become the sus- the subject of like whispers within you know whatever respective community is um involved so to kind of see mckay talk you know kind of fairly frankly about it i think was quite refreshing um doesn't make his movies any better (laughs) and in fact makes him look like a way worse person (laughs) but fair play for him to him for kind of like talking about it um very openly in an interview next in the news we have i think something that sent ripples of excitement throughout my twitter feed was the (laughs) announcement of the third film in the magic mike trilogy magic mike's last dance which is going to uh, debut i think next year on hbo max and uh, is being written by reed carolyn who i think wrote the the previous movies obviously he's going to star channing tatum and he's being directed by steven soderbergh who directed the first film and probably directed the second film um Technically, that one's credited to a different director, but also um, Soderbergh shot it and edited it. So, um, kind of a question about who actually made that movie. But um, mm-hmm. I'm I'm excited to see the uh, the Kings of Tampa uh, ride again uh, for the last time. I enjoy both of the Magic Mike movies uh, for different reasons. I think the first one's like a very um, trenchant look at like trying to survive in the kind of like post recession uh, America. And uh, the second one is just like one of the most purely enjoyable movies I've ever seen. <laughs> so interesting to see where uh, the third one goes. But yeah, I, I have really been, I've really enjoyed both of those previous movies. And I, I, I cannot stress how excited I am to see how, how this story wraps up. Oh, God, Ed, same. Well, I, it was a real, um, well, everything else is going to hell, but at least there's one more Magic Mike film in the deck. Um, mm-hmm. Ripples through Twitter feeds, rippling abs. It's amazing because it's so... Oh, God. Magic Mike, how do I love thee? Let me count the ways. It's so not about... It is about women's sexuality, and then it's also not, like... It's such a fascinating series and i love soderbergh and he and channing tatum i think are such an unsung collaborative powerhouse Mm. um so yeah just let me at it (laughs) and finally in our news segment uh news that kind of broke last night on gorka they obtained a leaked kind of zoom call between the staff of the av club and their corporate owners basically telling them that their offices in chicago where the av club and the onion have been based for much of the last 20 years i think since the the group moved from milwaukee in the maybe late 
90s, early 2000s, um, will be shuttering and that the staff are basically being told they can move to LA and take their jobs there or they will be given severance pay. So essentially the, the, the staff of the website are being told to move or lose their jobs. And I think uh, I, I follow a lot of people on Twitter who are former or uh, in some cases still current uh, writers for the AV club. Um, and like I've discovered a lot of great writers and great um, works of art through those people. And I also follow people who were kind of prolific commenters on the AV club back in its kind of like the early 2000s when as uh, 2010s rather when I was like really reading it avidly and yeah it was just like there was a real kind of collective sense of sadness from a lot of people about this because I think as someone who's read the AV club quite a lot over the last sort of like 10-15 years it, it did feel like it had its own distinct identity and I think a large part of that came from the fact that it was based in Chicago that it was separate from the LA media scene and the New York media scene. It had its own distinct identity. And I think it's going to be a real shame that it, it, it could lose that if it just became another outlet that's based in LA alongside all the other media outlets that are based there. But also I think it's just such an incredibly shitty way to treat the individuals involved who are still there, but also an institution that has kind of been around for such a long time and particularly in the realm of criticism i think has been at the forefront of like shaping the ways in which television is written about you know i think the the recap culture and the ways in which people engage with television was massively shaped by the work that was done at the av club in sort of the late aughts early 2000, uh, 2010s and some of the writers who were involved there and uh, yeah, I just, I just think everything about the situation just feels immensely awful to me. I mean, you summed it up really well there, Ed. Uh, I'm just going to be crude and say it fucking blows. Mm, yeah. So yeah, the the people at Geo Media who have like just ruined a bunch of publications, <laughs> uh, gutted Deadspin, and have done like a lot, just have treated everyone they own abominably continue to be terrible yeah. so um much love to the people at the av club and i hope that they all have better things in their future than working for ourselves 100%. so we'll go on to the main topic for this week and it is on musicians acting in movies this of course is inspired by lady gaga in house of gucci the ridley scott movie that uh, debuted over the Thanksgiving weekend and has done um, pretty well, uh, better than his previous uh, twenty twenty one movie, The Last Jewel, did, uh, which is a shame because The Last Jewel is the better of the two movies. But irregardless, yes. So obviously, uh, Lady Gaga is primarily known for being kind of a pop star and singer, and this is her second major role after A Star Is Born, which came out in twenty eighteen. And I thought it'd be interesting to talk about. Other examples of musicians who have kind of like turned to acting and the ways in which different films use pop stars, because I do think it's very interesting looking at the contrast between A Star Is Born and House of Gucci, because in A Star Is Born, which I think is a better performance from Lady Gaga in general, because I think there's a it's so much about the tension between the authenticity of being a real person who has talent and wants to make it in the music uh, business and the artificiality that then gets lathered on top of that because you have to craft a persona you have to be this kind of like public facing figure and you know obviously you know a lot of tension that then uh, emerges in her relationship with uh bradley cooper's character and house of gucci is in many ways all artifice because it's all taking place in the world of high fashion and her character is like fairly uh transparently trying to get into that world and to kind of like in some ways kind of like take it over and mold it in her own image and i think both movies are about the facade of being famous but you know applied in different ways and her performance in house of gucci feels kind of like very big and very kind of like arch and camp to an extent a lot of uh, scenery chewing involved 
which feels right for the movie even and the setting even if the movie itself i think is a little kind of like drab and and missing the bravado that maybe that story really needs um but i, I to me it, it definitely feels like an interesting example of filmmakers looking at what a artist is known for in their other work where you know um lady gaga is is known for being this kind of like having these these layers of artifice over her performances and you know this kind of um glitz and glamour to her which she has written about somewhat in some of her songs most not the you know the most um relevant probably being paparazzi and then applying it to the the movies themselves and in some ways commenting on that and sometimes some ways subverting it so yeah so, so that i think would be my kind of opening gambit and opening example of it of the ways in which filmmakers can benefit and films themselves can benefit from using a musician and and casting them almost kind of um, almost kind of regardless of how good the performance is i think and i i do think that gaga is a pretty decent actress but i think that you know there is there is just a certain energy and a certain kind of metatextual frisson that you get from casting someone who the audience is already well aware of through another medium totally and i think the interesting thing about gaga is that she really became known for a star is born where that metatextuality that you're talking about is like at its peak mm-hmm. and that it turns out oh hey she's actually a really great performer all round she doesn't just have to be singing yeah and i read um something where she spoke about the fact that she went very method when she was um playing Patricia Gucci to the point where Ridley Scott told her to stop because he was scared <laughs> for her well-being. Now, this is a more gendered point about how when male actors go method, um, it seems like the majority basically don't seem to call on any sort of past experiences and just use it as a license to be assholes. Whereas women, mm-hmm. it's like, oh, here's this huge trove of trauma I've got. Let me just uh, have a look through. So good for Gaga for being seemingly the only actor that Ridley Scott has been like I'm worried about you you don't need to do this for a film and I think the immediate example that springs to mind after speaking about Gaga and the metatextuality is thank fuck she's freed Britney Spears mm-hmm. in Crossroads mm-hmm. sure. now, I, I've forgotten how young Britney was when she was in Crossroads she's only about 20 and it seems like a like a total cash in on on her, but it's one of I think Shonda Rhimes's first feature films. Yeah, and like Britney's not bad. Like people are awful about her, but it was because it was at the point where people were starting to turn against her. And I think there's this odd kind of stay in your lane um, attitude towards a lot of particularly younger pop starlets um, Mm -hmm. where it's like we only we will allow you to be as famous as we want you to be like Mm. literally just be a singer and I think Miley Cyrus had this a bit because (laughs) looking back at the um, Black Mirror episode that she starred in it's clear to me that that's a very you know it was loosely based on Britney's story and at that point the allegations around Britney that now seem horrendously stark and very true and again who else are you going to cast as someone who has like a really distinctive speaking voice to come out of this doll like it's going to be Miley Cyrus who has one of the most distinctive speaking voices of the past sort of 10-15 years um but Crossroads was not like sunshine and light it was about it was it was the kind of equivalent of a young adult contemporary novel on film, right? It had a lot of Judy Blume-esque-ness to it. But it was exactly the kind of paradox that Britney, um, Britney's image was constructed to contain. It was simultaneously the good Christian working class Southern Amer- uh, Southern state white American girl, but then also kind of 
the general threats of sex, sexuality, men, like, oh man, I'm I'm convincing myself to watch Crossroads again. <laughs> also, it's interesting how, and thinking back to Gaga, the other sort of, the queen of pop, Italian-American Madonna, and how Madonna seems to be able to reinvent herself as pretty much anything other than a successful actor and filmmaker. Yeah. Which I think is a shame because I think she's a phenomenal performer. But acting wise, it just doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't ever really stick. And I've never seen WE, but part of me is like, one day I might just have to steal myself and do it because I'm fascinated by how Madonna sees the world and how she's going to try and do that through a misunderstood woman so misunderstood because she was a nazi sympathizer yeah. um mm. but i'm trying to think was it dick tracy that i think she was sort of yeah dick tracy she uh she's in and she sings songs by uh one of which songs uh, written by Stephen sondheim who won an oscar for it uh, funnily enough of course but she's like it's interesting how i think there's something in Mad- or at least maybe Madonna's let let it aside now, but there was a there was a big stretch where she was really desperate to be taken seriously as an actor and filmmaker, and and that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and because she wanted it so much. Again, the media and critics are, are fucking awful, and how much they sort of push back on her. But it's weird because it's kind of like not to criticize artists who want to try different things. That's not what I mean. But it almost felt like. I couldn't understand why she wanted it so much. You know, it's like, but you, yeah. not to stay in your own lane, but is this, is this actually what you want? But, and, and kind of with JLo as well. And I think JLo's finally managing to get roles that actually deserve her because she mm. kind of went through a sprinkle of like really quite dark stuff in the late 90s, but then got caught on the, rom-com um the rom-com uh industry complex and only now i think is starting to be able to kind of meld the two like i think she's incredible in hustlers um and i think like you know she's having a similar sort of reconnaissance like coming back to roles that actually have a bit more weight and there's nothing wrong with being amazing in rom-coms i mean that rom-com is it just called marry me with the trailer with wow owen wilson uh oh um yeah i think that might be what it's called yeah (laughs) i mean it looks batshit but i'm so on board (laughs) (laughs) because you know what she can do an excellent turn in a rom-com and you know get you someone who can do both more um but i'd love to see her be like remember how mariah carey was amazing and precious yeah she's on my list i Um, I do (laughs) like the woman can do glitter and precious like incredible why is she on your list tell me more about your reasoning ed my main reason was for for precious why i think that she is like fantastic in that movie and i think it is a really good example of what i was saying for where you know if you're taking an, a, a musician who has a very very established persona where obviously mariah carey is, is known for being kind of like the ultimate diva and has such a degree of kind of like bombast to her then there is i think an inherent kind of interest and value to casting her in precious where she is a you know she's a social worker she's like a totally just like she's a normal looking person there's none of the kind of like glamour around her she's just like someone who is trying desperately to help this girl in a terrible situation and who is you know kind of living a almost parodically (laughs) horrible life um and trying to get her out of it and i think that she is great in it and i think that there is I feel like Lee Daniels is very, very smart in that movie in casting her in it because, like, it immediately grabs people's attention. Like, Mariah Carey? She's in, like, this, like, really kind of tough drama, this urban drama, 
um, that's you know getting lots of awards contention, and then you watch it and you think, oh, she's just doing an absolutely fantastic performance, and like she she demonstrates that you know underneath you know kind of all of the razzmatazz around her, she is you know kind of a constant, like you're saying about Britney Spears, about um, about Madonna, like she's just like a consummate performer. She can do many different things it's just that people aren't necessarily asking her to do many different things and then Lily Daniels is the one who says you know do you want to kind of play this small but crucial role in, in this movie that I'm making and and then just to go back to Madonna for a bit as well I think the interesting thing about Madonna and years ago Matt and I did an episode about Madonna when we were doing like episodes where we would profile an artist and um, I think it was interesting because like so much of her iconography is based on movies. Um, like obviously, you know, she references Marilyn Monroe in Material Girl, and she is someone who I think really liked drawing upon um, different types of cinema and different images of of kind of like famous movies. And I think that period where she was really trying to be taken seriously was, I think, she she was trying to become famous for being in the kind of movies that she referenced. But yeah. her best performances are actually ones that don't adhere to that. Like her best, I think, uh, odds on her best performance is like um, in A League of a, League of Their Own. Oh my god! Yeah, she's fantastic. I think she's great in Desperately Seeking Susan as well, where she is playing this kind of like she's basically playing the sort of person that she was in New York before she became famous, like someone who's going around the clubs and is just kind of like someone who is like achingly cool and everyone is really drawn to, but like, she's not necessarily playing, you know, a character from a movie from the thirties, which is obviously what she's doing in um, Dick Tracy, which I think she is good in and she can do that stuff well, but it's not the sort of thing that really guarantees you respect or stardom in its own right. It, It kind of creates a, stardom that feels a little more kind of like facile and i think that was her problem is that she didn't kind of she tried to kind of just be a movie star straight away as opposed to an actor when you know when she would act um and like take on roles that weren't necessarily about you know having that kind of clear-cut persona i think she could be really really good i agree uh and yeah i think also in terms of uh musicians who like are cast because of their pre-existing persona obviously then that gets us into the area of musicians being cast in movies that are kind of fair like lightly fictionalized versions of them of their own lives because you know they bring so much of their themselves to their music and the story of who they are as an artist is kind of like so well known and i think probably one of the best examples of that certainly the best um that i can think of in recent years uh, and this is going back to 2002, so not that recent. But um, Eminem and Eight Mile, I think, oh, is yes. the is the best version of this in some ways, where it is, you know, Curtis Hansen directed the movie, and he's you know kind of like a great dab hand director. He can do a kind of like a real human drama well. He can kind of coax great performances from actors really well. And I think that he and Eminem get a great kind of version of Eminem's story out of it where it feels authentic his performance feels real and not just like you know kind of like an awkward non-actor trying to retell their own story it's like a genuine performance and I think there was talk at the time about you know Eminem kind of shifting over into acting full-time but I really do feel like he has um, only bolstered the reputation of that movie by never acting in something again except you know playing himself in funny people or whatever Um, like i think that has really that movie i think continues to grow because it's this really singular performance from him that really captures so much of what his identity was at that point both in the kind of like his own life story and also in the, the public consciousness for sure. And I think because so much of that is based on his own story, there was something quite refreshing mm. about like, well, I'm just going to play a version of myself in something that's kind of like my life story or my life story adjacent. And then I'm kind of done. <laughs> like, yeah, I respect that immensely. <laughs> um, oh, he and Brittany Murphy in that film is so good. Yeah, absolutely. 
someone who's very much not that. And I think it's an interesting point where you get to musicians who are now only really seen as like celebrities who mainly mm. act. So mm. the number one for me on my um in that subsection of the list is Justin Timberlake. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I remember the big hoo-ha about him in his first role in Alpha Dog. Yeah, because that was very much like um I guess this this is kind of getting into the idea of, you know, someone who has a very you know, he, he had a very clean persona, I guess. Although actually by that point I guess he had complicated it because Justified had come out and you know he'd, he'd done cry me a river and he had made that shift from squeaky clean like pop icon to you know the kind of like um you know adult pop star that he was trying to, to be and obviously he was like using the drama from his personal life to kind of like bolster his image as someone who's a little more dark and a little more complicated so i guess alpha dog like really continued that where it was the idea of like oh you know this guy's not just kind of a pretty boy who does pop music you know he can be in this gritty drama i guess a, a lot of the, the word gritty comes up a lot in this discussion because i do i do think that that seems to be the go-to direction for pop stars is they think okay if they want to take me seriously as a character i can't just do some like something light i need to do something that you know will put people through the ringer a little bit yeah and it was very much that kind of like edgy indie entrance into film and then i think people mm. started were like he's not terrible and people were very surprised by this and then he sort of like i remember the first time watching justin timberlake where i wasn't just sitting there going oh my god it's justin timberlake is the social network yeah, yeah, yeah. because i think he's ideal like he actually plays a character you know beyond himself and the irony of him being like the napster guy is again the sort of metatextuality you can't really get away from but mm -hmm. that's part of the palette that they're playing with. Um, yeah. And, I mean, why not? Like, I think Beyonce's kind of cursed in that <laughs> whenever whenever she was in films, it was like, but it's Beyonce. So, it, like, yeah. you couldn't really see her play a role because she's just too identifiable as herself. So, like, any sort of sense of illusion is shattered which Gaga doesn't have, like, I think because Gaga already has sort of put herself in that chameleon in, in her, uh, you know, in her initial route to becoming famous and being very much like a performance artist as well, like, and, and, mm. and being so influenced by that kind of, by the queer art alternative scene, basically. Um, of course, there like you can't not include race in this. There aren't as many parts, even for Beyonce. Um, yeah. So, how much of it is? Did she really stand a chance because she was in roles where traditionally white women had tread? Yes, I'm looking at um, Elizabeth Hurley and uh, um, Heather Graham. Thank you. I always want to say Locklear, and it's completely wrong. Yeah. Heather the Graham. Two, the two Heathers. The two Heathers. Uh, roller girl. You know, and and. I, I genuinely think Beyonce is great in gold member. <laughs> I mm. think I think she brings a lot of like like she she's like, okay, I'm essentially playing the straight woman and does it really well. But it's hard to sort of and, and the kind of moving into like how much did they actually enjoy the sort of like black exploitation angle that they were also trying to spoof in Gold Member mm. through her character. I don't think that fully it didn't do her justice, but yeah, it's it'll be interesting to see how Beyonce moves on next because I think the thing is Beyonce has transcended the Madonna complex <laughs> where it was like yeah. Beyonce keeps getting cast in films and not getting good reviews and it's like but she it, she doesn't need films anyway. Hollywood needs Beyonce not the other way around <laughs> you know yeah because like yeah she, you're you're right that she is she's very good in Goldmember and it's a it's a terrible shame that a she doesn't have a character that is like particularly well written or that necessarily that Mike Myers and co had as much kind of affinity for that kind of stuff in the same way they did kind of like the Matt Helm 60s spy stuff that they were playing with in the other movies like that's something that you kind of feel like um 
they have a lot of specificity to and like whereas the character of foxy cleopatra um in gold member like doesn't seem to be that much it's a very surface level understanding of black exploitation um i think it makes for an interesting contrast between that and say if you watch black dynamite or undercover brother which really do have an understanding of that genre and kind of like can really tease out yeah and it's um, it's no more than a reference it's yeah, just a throwaway exactly. visual reference it's not actually like the thing about you know black dynamite in particular is how much that is a loving spoof of the people most influenced by it and, mm, and it's like yeah. it, it comes from a place of love in the same way that uh another justin timberlake um vehicle and of course musicians in their own right it's been a while since we mentioned it ed that's right it's time for me to bring up pop star never stop never stop <laughs> um, where it's like it's not mean because these are people who can see the inherent absurdity in celebrity culture and yet can't not be fascinated by it and yeah know that you know it it comes from a place of love but yeah i like they're the lonely island they are you know comedian spoof musicians who were underappreciated in a film that's one of the greatest comedies of the past 15 years have we mentioned that <laughs> mm. yeah every, everyone check it out <laughs> if you have if you haven't recently if you haven't yeah, ever check, check out pop star never 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 it's the sound of the summer <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> hey i didn't realize i'd fallen into the limmy phrase <laughs> Uh, yeah, and also I think the thing that's interesting with with Beyonce as well is you're right that she she kind of has, she she moved away from traditional cinema like after a few attempts. The Gold Member was probably the most successful just because that movie was like a massive success, even though it was the weakest of the three, and like they've they've not gone back to the Austin Powers well since. Um, but then she was also in Dreamgirls, where. Obviously, she has the the lead role, but she gets over overlooked for uh, Jennifer Hudson, who also does is is very good. But like, I I I kind of wonder if there was a certain sense of like, Beyonce is playing, you know, a pop diva, like you know, the leader of a girl group. She was that in real life. People just don't necessarily rate that performance, even though it is a performance. And I think that she's very good in that movie. And then oh, what was the one? The Fighting Temptations. I think was like the other one that she did, which was like a movie about a gospel choir. Yes, that rings a bell. I feel like that's it in terms of her cinematic work. And I think after that, um, you know, she becomes, as, as though that's going on, she's becoming like the biggest star in the world. And then after that, she stops acting in movies and then she becomes a visual artist in her own right through Lemonade and through Homecoming and it feels as if maybe that is more what she's interested in now, that she want, she has reached the point where she has total control of her image and so knows how to use it better necessarily than you know people who would want her to act in a movie, um, which is interesting as well because, you know, in talking about A Star Is Born, you know, like, an earlier version of A Star Is Born that I think would have come out in the early 2000s was meant to star Beyonce in the Lady Gaga role, which I think would have been interesting if that had happened. I think that was when Clint Eastwood was due to direct it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but, um, but yeah, I, I, it definitely feels like um, she, like you say, she has transcended the need to just act in movies. Like She is definitely beyond the need in her career to kind of get the validation that comes from you know the the at times faint praise that musicians get from critics seeing them in a movie saying actually they're pretty good <laughs> um other examples i had of people who i think um i mean we can't really talk about can't really talk about um act uh, musicians acting movies if, and not mention at least mention elvis oh my God. who obviously was both you know, one of the first pop stars, one of the biggest, most famous people in the world, and also, you know, kind of acted in a bunch of so-so movies, but ones that were kind of built around him and his persona. Um, similarly, Frank Sinatra, kind of a, and at times, great actor, um, very good in The Man in the Golden Arm and From Here to Eternity. Um, but then a lot of the time, just kind of like coasted on being like, hey, it's Frank. 
as as seen in the absolutely interminable original version of Ocean's Eleven, um, <laughs> which is just not fun to watch at all. Um, and then uh, I think also um, two actors, two, two musicians who I think were perfectly cast in movies that made use of their distinct persona. I think um, David Bowie, obviously, um, in The Man Who Fell to Earth, but also um, Labyrinth, I think, is, uh, also makes good use of like his ethereal quality. And uh, Bjork in Dancer in the Dark. Oh, God, yeah, wow. Oh, my God, yeah, that, that film absolutely destroyed me. Actually, just because you mentioned Ocean's Eleven there, I realised we haven't discussed Rihanna. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. Now, again, I think on the Beyonce trajectory of she really doesn't have to... Like, she's one of the... She's, she's almost replaced the queen as the new head of state of Barbados. Like, the fact that she played a hacker, um, it, you know, that that's just a fun couple of weeks for her. It's not, <laughs> it's not a, a big turning point. Um, also pink. I remember when pink was mm. in thank you for sharing and I quite liked her, but it does seem a little bit like some people get the kind of zeitgeist of like, Hey, let's try this person. And I don't think, but, but that isn't dissimilar to Elvis, you know, yeah. looking at like how much of, you know, musicians who were kind of playing themselves and are really there to do it for the promotion of their overall celebrity domination. Like looking at Spice World, um, mm. which is a, a Technicolor version of A Hard Day's Night. And I will yes. physically fight anyone who disagrees with me on that point. Um, and also like, uh, the ultimate flex I've ever seen is when Elvis Costello is in Spice World for five seconds as a bartender. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, oh, that was, that was Elvis Costello. But it's very much uh, the Spice's time to shine. Um, so yes, there's like, because those films are an extension of promotion of the musicians as themselves. Whereas mm. I think now... It's it's hard because it's still the idea that somehow like particularly pop stars are seen as melodramatic and somehow unserious, whereas dramatic roles are where they can be serious. I'm thinking of Whitney Houston and The Bodyguard. Mm. Yeah, she, great one. Because she's incredible and she's sort of playing herself and sort of not. But I don't think we. I don't think she's really appreciated for how well she acts in that film. And I think that's the mm. closest to like a star is, that was like the, a star is born of the early nineties. Um, yeah, absolutely. And yeah. And again, I wonder kind of the pain of the fact that now we see Whitney in terms of films more because of the documentaries that have come out about the mm. worst parts of her life. Whereas in the bodyguard you know she was one of the most famous that that was one of the biggest films of the 90s you know yeah um, and the soundtrack album like it's one of those things where there's like an insane stat like one in every 10 households owned the <laughs> owned it or something like that incredible yeah i, I think also um just uh, we've talked a lot about like pop stars doing gritty realistic turns in in movies to kind of gain some sort of cred and obviously uh, bowie i think is a good counter example of that because obviously he got cast pretty much entirely as a weirdo which is fine and <laughs> fitting for his character including um himself in zoolander one of my all-time favorite examples of someone playing themselves in a movie um but i think a another good counter example of someone who is cast in a movie and just goes full fantasy is uh, tina turner in mad max beyond thunderdome mm. where she is, you know, one of the many um, series of kind of like over-the-top antagonists that Mac Rock Max Rokotansky has to fight over the course of those movies. But, you know, she brings a bit more complexity to it. And I think that she is, you know, a, a character who is trying to do right by the people in her care, whilst also being a warlord and therefore, you know, like trying to kill Max at one point. And I think that that um, makes great use of the, the bigness of tina turner like she is such a big personality she's such a big performer she's got such big energy 
that her being cast as like a post-apocalyptic leader of a wasteland you know you look at it and you think okay this could be just like a to go back to previous episode this could just be like a gimmicky thing but it fits like it makes sense for her to be cast in that role because i think she has the the size of personality to to make it work and to be convincing in the the setting that george miller puts together completely like there's no denying tina as soon as she struts into a room absolutely incredible so well then this episode is we end all our episodes with shot of shot recommends which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you the listeners will enjoy as well emily what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week now i'm pretty sure i've raved about defunct land in recommendations before but i really mm. think they've outdone themselves this time so for anyone not familiar with defunct land it's a phenomenal channel on youtube that follows the history of theme parks particularly rides and ventures that don't work out hence defunct land and it's such a fascinating history of corporate money grabs childhood delight and the kind of how fickle trend predict uh, trend predicting is and some of the things that they just think thought that they would get away with is quite spectacular but defunct land's most recent release is a one hour 40 minute long analysis of disney's fast pass system i was absolutely gripped it's beautifully made like the animation is incredible the analysis is second to none this is, I think, what YouTube is for. I think YouTube has mm. been leading up to this point because it's exactly the kind of fascinating niche on the surface, why would I want to know about this? And then the further you dive into it, just the, just the sheer maths that has gone into this, I'm impressed by. But it's a really compelling critique of, an observation of how operations and commerce really tie together because there are these um, realizations of like, you can have the absolute best ride in the world, but if the queue is too long, that's all that people are going to remember. But keeping that balance mm. going, oh, I just, I thought it was incredible. So that is um, the history of Disney's Fast Pass from Defunct Land. Cool. I am going to recommend. Get Back, Peter Jackson's eight-hour documentary about the Beatles and the sort of semi-abortive Get Back sessions, which they did in the early part of 1969, and which ultimately kind of led to the albums Let It Be and um, Abbey Road. But the the movie is more about this sort of two-week period where they felt like they had to get in the studio and kind of like hammer out an album. And it's compiled of all of these... Um, all this footage that was shot at the time by Michael Lindsay Hogg who ended up using some of it to make the movie Let It Be which for many years has kind of been the thing that's really shaped the image of the last year or so of the Beatles you know it's all very acrimonious and all about um, the band kind of like falling apart in recriminations and things like that and there is some of that in the documentary uh, in Get Back you see a lot of tension and you do get a sense that the the four of them were kind of splintering off in their own way and the whole project itself the whole idea of like getting a camera crew in to film them for, for recording for a television like performance that ended up not happening was like paul mccartney's idea and it all kind of feels a little bit like the hey like let's have an open relationship part of a marriage where like you're just kind of like throwing things out there and hoping that it all works and then uh, obviously it not end up working it kind of comes out of this kind of like somewhat silly idea that paul mccartney had to have cameras filming everything that they were doing which maybe us um exacerbated tensions a little bit but um it's it's great that they have that footage and that peter jackson has been able to go back and sift through it and kind of craft something that's a little fuller look at the last year or so of the Beatles, and really kind of with the microcosm of this this two-week period or three-week period um and basically captures the fact that you know they were still able to kind of like have fun together there was still some of that affection even if things were really strained and and mainly though so like you know for, for beatles obsessive there's like lots of great stuff in there about getting to see how those four guys interact with each other in the studio 
But I think it's also just like really fascinating as a look at the creative process. You have multiple scenes where the band kind of like are slowly kind of hammering out songs that will soon become iconic and well known like the world over and kind of pulling them out of the ether. And I think that element of it is is kind of like the most fascinating thing. It really does it doesn't um diminish the magic of creativity. In fact it um heightens it because of all essentially because essentially it says, Oh yeah, you know how you write a great song? You kind of just write it and it, you just have to be really talented and get it done. Um so that's kind of like one of the things I really loved about it. Like it does really emphasize the the beauty and the magic and the alche the alchemic quality of creativity. So that's Get Back, which unfortunately is on Disney Plus. So uh, <laughs> you know, get a get a free subscription for it or something and watch it over a weekend. It's it's worth your time. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, Spotify, all the usual places. You can rate us, review us, and recommend us to your friends. It's the best way to help us grow audience. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, where we are at SRS underscore podcast. We're back next time with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me.